Hello, everyone, and thanks for giving us your time today for VR Download. In case you're new here, each week we meet in virtual reality using the latest technologies to discuss the next generation of personal computing. I'm in the United States. My name is Ian Hamilton, and I'm joined by my colleague David Heaney in Northern Ireland. VR brings us together into this broadcast studio where we've got multiple automatic cameras, a TV behind us to show images and videos to our viewers, and we can see live comments from YouTube on our tablets in front of us. We syndicate VR Download out to all podcast platforms and encourage our audience to become members and subscribe to our work to support us and upload VR as we continue our work chronicling the next steps in computing. This week, we've been sponsored by Veil VR, which just released an early access on Steam. It's a VR first-person shooter built with immersive physics, full-body animations and skins, climb, vault, ride zip lines, and defy gravity on jump pads to achieve victory in this 5v5 competitive shooter. Heaney, what do we have today? Today we're going to talk about Meta returning to Germany after two years. The just announced DPVR E4 wired Steam VR headset. Meta reportedly talking with Samsung and LG display divisions to secure micro displays for AR glasses and next-gen VR headsets. And finally, the revelation that most of Meta's AR VR or Metaverse spending is going to the research and development of AR glasses. So that's the four topics we're going to be talking about today. I suppose it's worth noting that Heaney and I are both this week operating in Quest Pros, but we both have wind guards now around our microphones. So hopefully all of those puh, puh, puh sounds sound a little bit better than they have in previous weeks. Although so, yeah. my poor nose, it's tickling so bad as yours. <laughs> I know, yeah. I, I feel like I've got uh, extra amounts of hair on my face. Why don't we get right into it with our first story here? So this is Quest 2 is going to finally come to a place where it hasn't been available. Why don't you recap for us what's going on? So just before the release of Quest 2, one month ag- uh, before it, Meta announced that it was pulling out from its VR headset seals in the German market. And this had actually just been announced after Meta revealed that you would require a Facebook account to use their headsets. That revelation was actually announced just before the Quest 2 launched. So a lot of people speculated that Meta had actually been banned from selling in Germany. But it turns out, according to the reports we see now, that they preemptively pulled out of the market because the German FCO, Federal Cartel Office Regulator, had initiated abuse proceedings because of this concept that regulators call bundling or coupling, where you are forced to use one service with a market monopoly power in order to use the other. So obviously, we're now two years later, and a few months ago, Meta removed that requirement to have a Facebook account to use their headsets. And so the FCO released a statement saying, Meta has responded to our concerns and offered a solution by creating a separate Meta account for using the Quest. And Meta has now announced that they are going to return to the German market and thus Quest 2 will be sold for the first time in Germany by the end of this year. So presumably that means sometime in December. The FCO, however, have said that their investigation into Meta in general is not over and they are still looking into, and I quote, the question of the connection of the data processed within the framework of the various Meta services. So there, even though you no longer are required to have a Facebook account, that German regulators are still very concerned about what data Meta collects when you're using a headset that is shared to their other services. Because if you're someone who just wants that headset, 
where the regulator wants to make sure that your data isn't being shared with the other parts of Facebook's business. Hmm. Interesting. I would love to see people sound off in the comments from what countries they're tuning in from. I'm seeing people saying that they're getting a pro now. Razad is also saying that they're selling their G2. And of course, I was catching up on last week and the incredible deals out there for the G2, right as it seems to be at the end of its life. Thank you, Kyle, for stubbing in for me. I was traveling. And how many references? Three or four to being a bespectacled individual? That was fun to have him back. Any comments you want to respond to specifically before we move on to this new headset, which is pretty interesting? So we just have Sampler19 saying that they're from Germany and they're saying this is pretty good news for VR here. Uh, I guess the only difference now between when Meta was there two years ago is that there's now a viable competitor. So Pico obviously launched Pico 4 very recently and they have focused on Europe first. They're not in North America. So German consumers now have an actual choice between Quest 2 and Pico 4. And as we've gone over on this show before, that choice in many ways comes down to, do you want the headset with superior hardware or the headset with a superior content library and software? And that's going to be a very difficult decision for some people. Yeah, so let's move on to this DPVR E4 wired Steam VR headset with about the same resolution as Quest 2 and a uh, supposedly a wider field of view. Heaney, how, how much can we trust the numbers that are being associated with this headset? And do we think there's reason to think that they might be different? So field of view is notoriously difficult to get a spec from manufacturers. And the issue is that many of them just measure it differently. So it's very hard to compare like for like. But DPVR is not a new company. They've actually been around in China since 2015, seven years ago. They are established there, but this is the first time that as far as I know, they're releasing a headset that they see as being competitive enough to launch in the Western market for PC VR gamers. Their previous headset, the E3, didn't have built-in tracking. You had to attach a Nolo tracker or use your own kind of Vive trackers and index controllers. But this one has Quest 2 like inside-out tracking with those four cameras and, you know, let's be honest, Quest 2 clone controllers that you could, they're essentially identical to what the design that Meta has in Quest 2. As you say, th this has the exact same panel resolution as Quest 2, and it may be either the exact same panel or you know just another company building that's a panel to the exact same specs. But the difference is they're claiming that it has a much wider field of view. So whereas Quest 2's field of view is up to 96 degrees, DPVR is saying this is up to 116 degrees. That is something that we are obviously skeptical about because of all manufacturers stating field of view a little bit differently, but we're in contact uh, to discuss a review unit. And if we're able to get one, that's something we will test as well as the tracking. But the other thing I would say about this headset, the other appeal is supposed to be its weight. So whereas the Quest 2 weighs 500 grams and even the Reverb G2, which is a very lightweight headset, weighs about 500 grams, just under, this thing weighs 400 grams. So it should be the lightest PC VR headset on the market, if that is true. The price, though, is quite strange, $550. You would think that if they're going for something that is relatively simple in terms of using just a single panel design with inside-out tracking, that they'd be able to get it lower than that. So people are going to really struggle with the value proposition here, especially since Reverb G2 has been on such deep discounts recently, all the way down to $300 and has a noticeably higher resolution panel. The other crippling thing about this headset, which is really, really strange, is that it does not have IPD adjustment. 
like a Oculus Go or a Rift S, the lenses are fixed in place. So if you have a particularly narrow or a particularly wide IPD, this really wouldn't be a headset for you. Yeah, I'm seeing a couple comments that uh, YouTube didn't set out a notification for our stream today. Uh, I'm left to find out why that is. Uh, there is the the sponsorship in here, which we did disclose so that might have had an effect on the notification. So uh, just apologize there if it's not going out for some reason like that. Um, this headset, Heaney, I it's hard to get excited about new stuff in PC VR that's wired, at least for me personally. And I don't know if that's if that's just me or if that is the market now, right? Like, does it does it need to be wireless with the exception being PSVR 2 being, being like the one holdout here? So I think it does come down to price. If this thing was $250 and, you know, it was, it was marketed as just this simple, cheap way to get into PC VR, you know, it's just a lens. Uh, it's just two lenses with a display and four tracking cameras on a HDMI cable. That would be great. The problem is that they're asking $550 for this. So definitely in a market where you can pick up a Quest 2 or a Pico 4 and, you know, even for the extra price that you're adding onto this, get yourself an excellent Wi-Fi 6 router and get a really optimal virtual desktop wireless setup. It is really odd that this is the price they're asking for this. Maybe those lenses that they're talking about with the wider field of view are so good that they make up for it, but I'm skeptical because... You know, they are still Fresnel lenses, and we're now into the era of pancake lenses, which tend to have much greater all-aspect clarity, you know, all the way out to the edges, and obviously allow for a thinner design. Mm. Any comments there that you want to respond to? Uh, Jakey's asking if it's OLED. Uh, no, it isn't. It is fast-switch LCD. As we say, it is a display that appears to have the exact same resolution and specs as Quest 2, so it's exact same resolution and can also go up to 120 hertz like quest 2 so i wanted to mention our sponsor again veil vr was built from the ground up to support competitive play from standardizing player height to preventing play space cheats you can trust that every match will be competitive and fair it's available now on steam and their next esports tournament starts in january so get ready find out more you can check out their steam page in the video description here and I wanted to say thank you again for their sponsorship this week. We ready to move on to the next subject there, Heaney? Yeah, I think we move on. I don't see any extra comments on this night. Yeah, so Meta is reportedly in talks with Samsung and LG to secure micro LED and OLED micro displays for AR glasses and next-gen VR headsets. Uh, why don't you break, us, break it for us? down as as simply as you can uh, what these two types of display tech uh, are and could be used for. Yeah, so as you say, there are two types of display techs that Meta is reportedly talking to Samsung and LG about. This is comes from a report from SBS Biz, which is a South Korean uh, news outlet, and they are reporting that dozens of Meta executives have met with Samsung and LG in South Korea. So Micro LED is a truly new display technology. In recent years, you probably have heard of a lot of new, uh, quote-unquote, new display technologies like QLED and Mini-LED. But in reality, those are all just variations of LCD, variants of LCD that have a more advanced backlight to try and get closer to the kind of contrast that you see with self-emissive display technologies like OLED. But Micro LED is a truly new display technology. 
which is similar to OLED in that each pixel is self-emissive, but it's capable of much greater brightnesses than OLED, and it's much more efficient than OLED. <laughs> the commenters are pointing out you're actually wearing his shirt. That's terrifying. I'm definitely changing my shirt for the next episode. I, that's, wow. That's creeped me out a little bit now, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, sadly, it's Bradley in our, in our comments. Uh, oh, I see that's who pointed it out. Uh, hello, Sadly, it's Bradley. Sadly, Bradley has been talking a lot in his videos about OLED micro displays, which is what we'll talk about next. But yeah, the, the application in the near term for micro LED displays, or should I say the medium term, is AR glasses. Because they are so bright and so efficient, more so than any of the other display technologies, they're suitable for these glasses that need to work on a really bright sunny day and yet run off a really tiny battery that's embedded into the frame of something that looks like normal glasses. Uh, the Verge has previously reported that Meta plans to use micro LED displays in its AR glasses, which The Verge and The Information report are now scheduled to launch to consumers in 2026, so four years away. It's notable that no company has yet figured out a way to mass produce micro LED displays at scale. It is something that all of these display companies are known to be researching, including Apple and Samsung and Meta and many others and Sony and every, dis every major display technology company you can think of is researching it. The Samsung do sell some you know, enormous micro LED TVs that are somewhere on the order of $100,000. But it's hard. It's arguable that those aren't really micro LEDs at that point because it's so big. In the next few years, if we do see this technology come to life, it will likely first be found in a meaningful way in AR glasses. So separately and in the nearer term, Meta is also reportedly talking to these display companies about OLED micro displays. So OLED micro displays actually use an ever so slightly different manufacturing technology than regular OLED displays. It's called OLED on silicon. And the advantage here for near-term VR headsets is that it could enable them to be much lighter and more power efficient than even the new wave of pancake lens headsets that are using LCDs. So you can get displays that are just a fraction of the size of those LCDs. And we've actually seen prototypes of headsets like this over the years, most recently in the Panasonic headset that was shown off in early 2020 and ian i believe your profile picture on at least some platforms is still you wearing it <laughs> yeah uh those super small uh the super small display that uh you could adjust with the the dial in between the two lenses was such a cool design idea and i know uh panasonic has been trying to um trying to get those out to market in a couple of ways haven't they heaney yeah, so their subsidiary, Shiftall, actually has an announced headset coming next year that uses these the same design with these OLED micro displays. And this image here shows you an example of if you're building a non-standalone headset, just how small the headset form factor can get to when you're using these OLED micro displays. So, you know, I speculate, and I want to be clear, this is speculation, we have no insider information, that Meta may be looking to, the, to this technology for Quest Pro 2 the successor to Quest Pro, which has been reported by the information to be scheduled for around 2024. And the advantage there is that they could make the headset even thinner, but more importantly, lighter. Because Quest Pro, despite being thinner, is actually overall heavier than Quest 2. And based on the teardown we saw recently from iFixit, one of the big reasons for that is that 
these mini LED backlights that are used to kind of get closer to OLED level contrast, but not anywhere actually to the point of OLED level contrast, have these gigantic cooling fans behind them that are cooling down these displays. And if you look at some of the other uh, displays in the world that use uh, multiple backlights like this, that use, you know, 500 or a few thousand backlights, such as Apple's high-end XDR display, you see this uh, constant use of these very large heat sinks to draw in the heat. And the advantage of OLED micro displays is that they're self-emissive and get this level of contrast without producing that much heat. So it'll be really fascinating to see, can Meta finally deliver a headset that is not only slim, but also light while still being standalone in Quest Pro 2? So a couple of people bring up different things in the comments that are sort of sparking in my, my head too about uh, the brightness of displays going forward, field of view, as well as um, verifocal focusing. Uh, Meta has shown these uh, sort of electronically activated lens layers that they could activate um, in some of their research for basically getting you multifocal uh, distances out of your lenses without actually moving the the physical objects. Do you think we're going to see something like that in the Quest Pro 2 timeframe, or are they going to pick other trade-offs instead? So. If I recall correctly, the last time they talked about this, they seemed to hint at this being something that would come in the second half of the decade. So again, if I'm going to go into pure speculation mode, I would speculate that we're likely to see that verifocal technology arrive more like in the time frame of Quest Pro 3. So the successor to the successor of Quest Pro. And based on you know what seems like the obvious next step and these discussions that have been reported, I think the, the step for Quest Pro 2 is going to be that move to OLED micro displays. Andrew, making this comment as I age and my near focus gets worse, I'm not at all interested in verifocal. Chris image, wherever I look, is a superpower of current VR. Uh, Ian seems to have just temporarily disconnected there. So just looking at the comments here, Sherzud Khan City saying, Quest Pro 2, I just bought the first one. Well, again, the reports indicate that this would likely happen in 2024. So we've been saying on the show for a while that Quest Pro probably will not have as long a lifespan as Quest 2 because it is a first-generation product with a lot of low-hanging fruit improvements that may have been delayed. So, it, you know, I speculate it may have actually been originally intended to launch a year before it did. But, you know, if you are someone who is price-sensitive, I don't think it would ever be have been a good idea to get the Quest Pro. You should really only be buying that headset if $1,500 does not mean so much to you that a successor coming out in two years would be a serious problem. You know, I've, I think I don't think any outlet as that's reviewed Quest Pro has said, this thing is good value for money. So you do have to kind of factor that in and also note the fact that Quest 3 is announced as coming late next year and it will not have all of the features of Quest Pro and it will be missing some of the very key features of Quest Pro. But based on what we know, it will have a much more powerful processor, which if you're using these headsets for the kind of use cases that most people are, like gaming, is going to be a lot more important. Uh, article pointing out, though, that Quest Pro will likely get a lot of updates and new features through software updates, and that is definitely true. It's important to note that the original Oculus Quest 1 launched with 2D pass-through, no hand tracking, and no Oculus Link. And over the course of that headset's lifetime, it got those three major software updates and a lot more features. So, you, 
you know, some people would criticize the fact that a lot of technology products these days are kind of launch half finished and very buggy and missing a lot of the features that the companies hope to put in it. But at the same time, you could, you could counter argue that it means that you get these features earlier than had you been waiting for the company to get the product fully ready. Uh, Artful is, is questioning, you know, is the first update due in early December with update V47? That, that's correct, yes. Early December is when the first major software update for Quest Pro is planned. I just did a restart on my headset. Hopefully, I don't know if that would affect crackling things that I, I noticed some commenters were saying, but always a good idea to both restart the PC and the headset before we do our streams, I think, going forward, just in case some of those legacy issues are, are coming across, because I know, I know I've had all sorts of weird issues happen. Uh, so I think we're getting closer to to figuring out all the issues that we have. What was I wanting to, there was one comment I wanted to respond to right when I got disconnected. Yeah, uh, talking about Verifocal and Focus. So uh, I remember talking to Landman a little bit about this and as we age, our focus, our near focus can go. But one of the things I've wondered a long time about Heaney is whether we're going to get just prescription built into a lot of the designs going forward. And actually, if prescription is a uh, a bigger problem to solve, period, uh, rather than getting the focal to be the the focusing to be exactly as comfortable as it needs to be, but uh, it is one of those things that uh, over over time, uh, I do wonder about sort of the value of I don't know getting your prescription built in with your glasses versus having to get it as an aftermarket add on is kind of a pain all around. I think. Yeah, I think it's the VR market's going to need to be a lot bigger until we get to the point where you customize your headset at the at the point of order and you get, you know, a different slightly different lens or a slightly different adjustment based on your personal face size. You'd also need to factor in the fact that it would pretty much be useless if you were demoing to someone if each headset had to be uniquely tailored. But as you say, you already can get prescription lens inserts for Quest 2 and for some of the other headsets, and that seems like it'll be the solution going forward for a long time. Uh, Meta, when they talked about their Holocake prototype, talked about the idea of just lens, you know, really, really thin lens covers that could just be added to the top to adjust for different prescriptions. So I do, I, yeah, I do think in the short term and in the medium term, and until the long term, the solution is just going to be inserts rather than entirely custom built headsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did put it out into that Quest Pro 3 timeframe for some of these things. And I, I guess I just wonder if multiple multiple issues are solved all at once if they can actually build build that in to the headsets themselves. I I spent a lot of time uh digging through sort of the the features that, that Apple and Meta and Google are rolling out uh in, in various ways. And like they're trying to lower the barriers to interacting with all of their AI bots. So you don't have to say hey uh, all the time. You can just look at your devices and get them on and open. And I, I guess I just, I, I think a lot about how um, they're all moving in the same sort of direction of, of interacting with our devices kind of all the time. Um, and, and I, yeah, are we ready to talk about this next uh, area here uh, where, uh, well, why don't you summarize for it, Heaney, because it's related to the last subject a little bit. Yeah, so the last topic we're going to talk about is the fact that it's been reported that Mark Zuckerberg told his employees recently in an all-hands meeting 
that 50% of Meta's ARVR, Metaverse, spending is going to the research and development of AR glasses. So this is actually interesting because the, the popular perception amongst people who, re- who don't really follow VR closely or just like to kind of dunk on a lot of new technologies in general is that Meta is spending the majority of its money building Horizon. But according to this breakdown, Horizon is actually less than 10%. So 10% is going to Meta's first-party content like Horizon. 40% is going to VR. So, you know, that's everything to do with Quest and all of the kind of peripheral aspects of Quest, including, you know, accessories and store funding and, you know, the development of Quest 3, for example. But over 50% of that budget is going to this product category that hasn't even been formally announced yet, a product category that doesn't really exist yet. And that according to Mark Zuckerberg's sort of goal and timeline here, he doesn't expect to even be a viable product for anyone other than first early adopters until perhaps the 2030s, even the reportedly the first you know versions that are likely to be expensive and limited and aimed at these early adopters is coming in 2026. So like we always say on this show, there really hasn't been a long-term investment like that in tech for quite a long time. Usually we've seen product categories kind of start and very basic and iteratively build up, but Zuckerberg is kind of betting his entire company on being able to just throw tens of billions of dollars over the course of more than a decade to try and be the first mover into a completely new space that could be the only technology device to disrupt the smartphone since the popularization of the smartphone. Yeah, so uh, Bradley making the comment, optical AR being such a classic money burn, uh, but I get it. And I think that's kind of where I, where I wanted to go with with explaining, I guess, where I was coming from, is that Apple has been advertising a lot of their augmented reality features as access, accessibility-based features. And they've been announcing them and slowly rolling them out in various ways. So like gestures you can make with your watch in order to interact with things. There's camera-based recognition of both what's in a photo or when you've got sort of a live view of something. You've got room recognition. All these features that that are rolling out that can be of service to making the devices accessible in a lot of different ways. And... Over on Meta's side of things, they're working on a lot of the same ideas that have already been announced by Apple, but they're sort of in the future tense. They're for hardware that Meta hasn't actually built yet. And you're talking, Heaney, about the investment on actually building that hardware to match where some of their ideas are. Uh, I saw Carmack tweeting about uh, augmentation and having enhanced hearing or enhanced sight via your glasses that you're wearing. And he made this very plain comment on his Twitter that uh, companies that don't try to enhance your senses in that way are going to fail. I'm noticing this trend on on both companies of moving towards sort of perception superpowers. And Apple has been able to roll out some of these things as accessibility features but we are talking about that being a big path on these devices going forward, aren't we, Heaney? Yeah, it was a very interesting example that Carmack gave in that, you know, AirPods Pro and a lot of the high-end wireless earbuds you get now can enhance your hearing. You can use the pass-through mode 
where they use the same technology that they use for noise cancelling, except the complete opposite. So you're walking out in the street and you can actually hear better than if you didn't have them on. And obviously, Carmack alluded to quite dismissively the privacy concerns there in that what happens when this technology gets good enough, even before glasses, just in earbuds, that you can hear someone else's conversation from across the other end of a restaurant? How does society respond to something like that? And of course, when it comes to AR glasses, you get the visual aspect here. What happens when you can read a piece of paper that someone has in their hand from across the other side of the restaurant? What happens when you have a system that can detect you know, whether they're likely to be lying by doing real-time computer vision analysis on their face? What happens when you can lip-read someone from hundreds of meters away? There's a lot of concerns that if you have perceptual superpowers, what are the negative implications? But at the same time, there's going to be a lot of positive usage of this. And like any technology, it's going to depend on what the usages are and what the regulation is. Yep. Uh, and I th- that's why I wanted to get into it. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because you do have that first generation Ray-Ban story sunglasses out there from Meta and they are smart glasses. They they have, they launched with a 30 second limit on how long you could take videos and then it got expanded to 60 seconds. But because of its release timing, it came out with the wake word of, hey, Facebook, uh, instead of, hey, Meta, because it didn't actually change over. Now, in the most recent connect keynote zuckerberg confirmed that they're still working on another generation of those glasses but they're still we expect them to be firmly in this smart glasses territory uh you know i the thing that gets me about this uh, all the time heaney is we've got a period here for the, the last half of this decade that's what seven years long And we expect multiple generations of standalone VR gear to hit over the next uh, seven, eight years, all before we actually get to something that's as slim with as wide a field of view as these smart glasses are sort of pitching towards, right? Do you think we can get to sort of, do do we have to have a visual display system in these glasses, Heaney, for them to be useful? I think it needs to have some sort of display, but immediately in the first products that we see, they don't need to have a full AR display. So what's been reported to be coming from Meta earlier than 2026, sometime around 2024, is exactly that, non-AR smart glasses, where you have a tiny little heads-up display that can give you contextually useful information without actually being putting objects into the real world. That's obviously something we've seen before. Google Glass, and it failed for multiple reasons, one of which because it didn't actually look like normal glasses. It had this kind of really weird sort of side part coming out, and also it was $1,500. If Meta can build on its current strategy of partnering with Ray-Ban to release you know, stylish and attractive Ray-Ban glasses that give you a heads-up display for notifications, basically just a smartwatch in your glasses, it could be a somewhat useful product for some people that gives them a starting basis to then develop that over time into AR glasses. But it will probably take, you know, and it reportedly will take until the second half of this decade until you get true AR glasses where you actually can see, you know, a virtual Pokemon on the ground or a floating blue arrow that points you in the direction of your navigation. Or when you look at a sign in a foreign country, it's translated into your language instead of the original language. Or, you know, the classic example of subtitles coming out of someone's mouth. Although 
that that example points to what is possible even on those HUD glasses. You could get translation that is subtitles that are just kind of fixed in space. You could get translation that shows you what a sign is saying without even changing the sign. And you could get navigation that means you don't have to look down at your phone while you're walking along the street, but without it actually being a blue arrow. Uh, just to re respond to one question here, uh, Artful is asking, uh, I've seen two different mock-ups of the Apple headset. One is a swimming mask one, and the other, which is more of a clear Google Glass design. Which one do we think it will be? And the answer here, and we've gone through this on this show before, is both these are different product categories that are coming in different years. The Apple headset is reportedly coming next year. The Apple glasses are reportedly coming in something like four years in the same timeline as Meta's. So as, as we always say in the show, the, for the foreseeable future, these are going to be distinct class of products. Headsets that you wear in your house, just like you would use a laptop today, and glasses that you take out with you into the real world, just like you use a smartphone today. Yeah, and we've got some sourcing backing us up on that. Uh, basically, I, I but that's Heaney's been been Heaney's explanation for years in this show. But also, I talked to Abrash, Michael Abrash, over at uh, Meta quite recently. He basically reinforced that reinforced that exact same explanation of where we're headed uh, with with things. Um, I think the the one I always come back to Heaney is when you start describing this heads-up display and just having text with uh, the camera imagery being processed in real time all the time for things that maybe you will have questions about. Uh, I, I do wonder whether like we can get to that kind of speed of feedback on these just devices that run out of power super-duper fast. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I guess I've, I've just come back to a lot here. It's if you look at the battery life of a AirPods Pro, I think it's in the range of three and a half to four and a half hours. And that's not an all-day augmentation, right? That's not the, the marker, the same marker that we're holding some of these glasses to, that they should be wearable with you uh, all day long. And I know you've talked about that AR2 chipset last week where it's just processing all of these different things across all these devices when do we get to the next sort of minimum viable feature uh, that's in these glasses? Because I will argue, I, I will believe that the 30-second to 60-second videos that you're getting out of the first Ray-Ban stories, those are amazingly cool, awesome, unique features that you get out of wearing those glasses. What's the next thing after that for us to actually get? Is Do we have to go to translation or are there simpler things that we're going to get first? Well, I, th I think the first obvious low-hanging fruit is notifications. You know, in the same way that a smartwatch is useful because it means you can kind of filter your notifications without having to take your phone out of your pocket and face your head down and completely disengage from real reality. A smart glasses means you don't even have to bring up your watch. You can just kind of, in the corner of your eye, get these notifications that are contextually useful. But when it comes to the battery life problem, that really is, at the end of the day, going to be the biggest constraint to making these smart glasses and then AR glasses viable products. And I would expect that just in the first generations of these products, they will be very limited in battery life. But there are kind of prospective ideas that could maybe get us eventually to all day. One of them is custom silicon, where chips that are designed not at all for general purpose compute, but are specifically designed for these exact glasses to run 
as much fixed function hardware as possible and not very much general purpose hardware such, uh, such that it is as optimized as possible for the exact use case. This is something we're already kind of seeing in parts of the Qualcomm chipsets. They're already putting in fixed function hardware to do a lot of these AR tasks. Uh, it, on Qualcomm's new AR2 glasses chips that we talked about last week, there is dedicated hardware to do some of those common computer vision tasks. The other one is that sometime in the next decade or two, there could, we have no idea whether this will be the case, there could be a rapid advancement in batteries that gives us a, a much greater uh, density than today's lithium-ion batteries. There are a lot of companies putting a lot of money into researching various solid-state battery technologies, and even ones that aren't solid-state, they just have the potential to be much more dense than lithium-ion. So it may just take those extra battery technologies to really get an all-day wearable glasses, but optimistically, very well-optimized software with very well-optimized tailored chips could maybe get us there near. Yeah, it's the... It's obviously that that gap between what three years and ten years, where the world really changes in really significant ways, and we can kind of sometimes see the next year or two, but then that that period of five to ten years gets a little bit murkier, and uh, the battery life question on these devices never kind of goes away, right? I loved the feature on the latest HTC headset where you get like a you get a a miniature multi-second like delay while you're swapping batteries out, right? So you've got an opportunity to hot swap battery sources in and not actually get knocked out of your VR experience. Like that seems like a really cool trade-off uh, if you really want to get some of that weight off the front of your head. But then you obviously add a cord back to your experience and that's always the complaint. But I still wonder about whether that weight trade-off might be worth it in the next two to three-year time frame. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is important to note about any kind of perspective near-term AR glasses, and when I say near-term, I even mean four years from now, is that they will very likely offload a lot of the processing, if not the vast majority of the processing, to either your phone or a computing puck. I don't think we're going to see truly standalone AR glasses for a very, very long time, at least not ones that have any kind of usable battery life. Trying to do all that computing in a glasses frame is just right now in the realm of science fiction. It's just not something that I think any company even claims to have any idea how to achieve. But if, if these glasses are essentially just a thin client, they are just a you know quote-unquote dumb display that are just doing the tracking locally and everything else is just being kind of streamed in the same way that virtual desktop or Airlink works from your phone, you do have a, a lot greater opportunity to deliver something with better battery life in the same way that if you did, were to do that with uh, Air, AirPods, if they were trying to run some sort of a lot of the translation tasks locally or anything like that, they would obviously have a much, much worse battery life than what they are today, which is essentially just dumb receivers that only really run the noise cancellation locally. Yeah, there was a comment here that I thought was interesting here. Let's see, where did it go? Yeah, I can't wait to look at the gas meter and see the bill every time I walk past it. I do think of that same sort of, of thing I was talking about, trying to get across the potential of VR and AR over the holidays, as I always do uh, with, with family and friends. And uh, I, I brought the Quest Pro over uh, in its uh, in-case portable accessory case that in case it's sent to test. And got it out 
uh, it had been fully charged before I left, got it out all ready, excited to show it off, and it had no battery in it. And it was a huge bummer uh, to have that sort of situation where it's almost solved on the glasses side of things with the battery case built in. Um, but uh, while we were talking about it, that, that, that the idea that I think sells AR, at least to me, explaining it these days, is imagine being able to look around and getting all of this information about your stuff in your household that you can't readily see or you're unless you're tracking all of this stuff really extensively and manually it can be hard to keep track of things like your electric bill or your heating bill and you know seeing a constant meter inside of your field of vision reminding you uh of various things going bad like your food going bad or uh other tasks you need to get to those things could be really helpful near term uh, without ever actually leaving the house. And people have all these outdoor visions of what AR can look like when uh, I think people can find a lot of useful things indoors for those those things near term. Yeah, and those ideas can also translate to outdoors as well. You know, you walk out to your car and you look at it and you see a, a notification floating on top of your car that tells you that your car insurance is going to inspire, expire in a week. Uh, you know, you're walking along and a restaurant that you've been to 10 times, uh, you look over to it and see a notification floating alongside it saying that they're having, you know, a discount or something or they're having, they've put a new dish in. Obviously, there's going to need to be a balance here between what is genuinely useful for the user and what is just advertising spam. But systems over time are going to prioritize that, you know, in the same way that today on smartphones, you have to choose between what apps and what devices you want to choose based on how much they're going to advertise to you and how much they're going to provide real value. Yeah. Uh, any comments that you want to respond to? Some of our commenters out there cracking me up with their perspectives on how uh, how they're going to use their AR devices in the future? Uh, yeah, so people are talking about the production of Apple's headsets starting in January, reportedly, and that uh, people are asking, do we believe that? And, you know, I would say... It seems plausible based on the other reports that we've seen. But again, I want to stress that what Apple is reportedly launching next year is a headset in the same sense of something like Quest Pro. It is not glasses. And, you know, headsets will be great for indoor use, but this sort of outdoor use, the glasses form factor is what's going to be most likely. But, you know, for me, it's not just the contextual information that makes AR appealing. To me, the real a core appeal of AR glasses is moving from heads down technology to heads up. Because one of the big kind of problems with smartphones and one of the detrimental aspects to society that I think is underlooked, people talk a lot about, you know, addiction to things like scrolling feeds. But for me, it's the fact that your head's down, that you're out in the real world, you're in a restaurant with your friends, or you're having to search to find a nearby place that you're trying to navigate to. And you have to put your, your, put your head down like this and stare at a little rectangle in your hand, and you're completely disconnected from the real world, and it's this completely separate context that is just horribly antisocial and you know, probably terrible for your posture as well. And with AR glasses, I can't wait to be able to just have my head up and decide to navigate to somewhere and see a floating blue arrow that means I never have to look down. I'm still engaged in the world. I can still be talking to my friends beside me without having to go to this completely separate rectangle that is closed off from them. And if that can be, if that's something that can be delivered by Apple and Meta and these other companies in the next 10 years, I think that's where the appeal is going to be to, to using this over a smartphone, even if in the first generations it requires a smartphone to power it. 
Guy uh, Goad and the creator of Virtual Desktop making the joke that he is looking forward to fighting with Apple to try and get an app like Virtual Desktop on their store. I think that was one of the features that's supposedly been rumored to be worked on by Apple itself. And we've seen some of their latest things uh, where they're showing controlling devices from multiple devices uh, is some of the latest stuff that they're rolling out. There was a comment right above that that I thought was interesting. Uh, Wolver Oza asking, does Apple have controllers or are they doing hand tracking? Haven't seen controllers for the Apple headset yet. Uh, the latest reporting and rumors out there has always talked about a thimble-like device. We've heard that term associated with Apple's uh, reporting. And it's fairly confusing because it is so darn vague and there are so many things they could do with it. But the I guess the thing I'll add is this gesture that you use over on meta devices, this, this pinching gesture, you get a haptic effect from actually pressing your fingers against one another. And that's one of the things that I think about a lot when we hear about different things from Apple. Uh, having just that slight haptic feedback to, I don't know, definitively know that you've touched something versus just air tapped would be a significant uh would be a significant thing uh, that would that would help move everything forward. I think. Yeah, and if these uh, if this thimble that we've seen in Apple's patents and in reports, and you know, if you're watching the video, you can see on screen here the images from some of those patents. If it has a, a capacitive sensor in the side of some sort, it could also detect something like scrolling. So you just slide your finger along the thimble, and that kind of self contact means that without having to do these open air gestures that you know, will eventually just tire your hand out. You can just kind of put your hand down to the side and scroll along with your finger. It's quite similar to what we're, uh, Meta is talking about doing with their uh, neural wristband, their EMG wristband, in that you're detecting very subtle movements from your finger to produce results rather than requiring large gestures, except they're using kind of self-finger contact through a device attached to the finger rather than just through sensing it. So it'll be fascinating to see what input approaches these companies go with. Uh, I think anyone who's expecting Apple to come out with gaming-like touch controllers that are basically what we have today that's an Xbox controller split into half is going to be sorely disappointed. I would be seriously, seriously surprised if Apple comes out with something like that. But in, in an ideal scenario, there will perhaps be third-party makers that are able to integrate with Apple's system using you know, Apple's uh, existing resources there where device makers pay a small fee to Apple per seal to be able to do that. And maybe that's how you get those kind of advanced games on Apple's headsets. Mm. Yeah, I the, the input is going to be this ultimate question. Uh, I wonder if they could, you know, they've got their very simplified uh, hand tracking based system uh, as sort of the main thing. And then you can somehow have I don't know, slightly wider range of keyboard or mouse support. I don't, I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to imagine Apple fumbling the input question here, but it is, is that so many early games require dual analog stick input and seeing them skip that is so hard to imagine at this point. Um, I, I think yeah, they're sorry, definitely going to have keyboard and mouse support. That, that's almost certain, but that doesn't mean that they're going to have gamepad support, but you know, I, I don't think if they ship something like this, that's fumbling input. It just means that they're designing a device that's supposed to appeal to a much wider range of potential people than gaming controllers. You know, 
if you look at the number of people who are who have ever even held for more than five minutes a gamepad style controller on a global scale it's actually tiny console gaming is not anywhere near as big as the usage of tablets and smartphones it's something like 150 million people in total whereas something like three or four billion people use an android or ios like device with a touchscreen so if apple's trying to over time eventually create this device class that's going to appeal to a much general wider market perhaps they just won't even bother to go for game controllers and they'll be happy to leave that to other companies like meta but who knows Sorry, I was just I lost in thought of of imagining uh, an Apple headset running Steam VR content. Like, how does that? It's the, it was the dream of what five years ago now uh, when they showed a Vive with an external GPU uh, hooked up to a, an Apple device to make all that possible. And uh, I don't know. It, it's it's just funny to think about how that may or may not ever happen. We've talked about it nonstop for years now, Heaney. Yeah, I think uh, Onikazi's here is talking about the fact that, you know, maybe there'll be a Steel Series VR controller for Reality OS. And obviously, you know, if you get Guy Godin, who's in our comments here, the developer of Virtual Desktop, if he develops an app for Apple, if Apple lets him on, then you get that streaming, I guess. You know, at the end of the day, it's just a, it's just software, but it is still going to be that input question. You know, are you going to have to go out and buy something like the index controllers and base stations if you want to have that set up? Or will there be some sort of way to have these gaming-style controllers on the Apple headset? You People are here saying Apple's never heard of gaming or Apple's not usually into gaming. I think the reality is more complicated than that. Apple is one of the world's largest games companies, actually, in terms of gaming hardware and platform providers. It's just that it's not the kind of gaming that people who are watching this show think about. It's a much more casual form of gaming. It's games that use that appeal to a much wider audience and use much more simplistic controls and have a lot less in way of immersion and sort of scope, but it's still technically gaming. So I would expect we will see a lot of games on Apple's headset, but not the kind of games that you move around a virtual world with a thumbstick. More like the kind of games that are something along the lines of Beat Saber, something along the lines of Job Simulator, or all of the other active uh, room scale games that we've seen come to VR so far that aren't basically just taking a Xbox or PlayStation style game and putting VR onto it. Solitaire, the online MMO. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like, I'm thinking back to my earliest times of interacting with computers, right? Like, yeah, I had a Game Boy back in the 90s that I played like crazy. But then when I got my first, you know, access to my first real computers... It was looking for the built-in accessory games, including like Solitaire, Minesweeper, uh, I think Skiing. I don't know if that was, that was like an expanded collection game on the original uh, PCs. But then over on Mac, you had things like Chess and a couple others that got bundled in there over the years. Uh, I want to say there were a few demo programs bundled in with the early iMacs. Uh, you know, it's not... You know, games are a built-in function of computers for decades, and it would be hard to imagine games being missed. The thing that I guess I, I fr that frustrates me, Heaney, with the uh, Quest Pro is there's not a lot of apps using the room understanding to sort of relayer over your room in a more appealing way than's possible with the pass-through cameras. And I think once we see software that kind of does that, where you don't have to see through these fuzzy cameras your room, 
you just see your room reskinned with really cool textures. And I would love to see the games built around that as a core functionality. Yeah, I think those kind of mixed reality games are going to be so essential to what people play on VR headsets, but we haven't even really seen many of them at all yet, which is remarkable. But one of the reasons is obviously that if you're a developer that builds something around that, then when the the user launches the app, they're going to be forced to go through that really arduous, low manual process of tagging out all of the room geometry. I think we'll have to wait for this to be an automatic process to really become widespread. As you pointed out near the start of the discussion, Apple has that automatic process on their iPhone Pro and iPad Pro. A lot of people always forget the Pro part of that sentence, though. It's not something that's available on the standard iPhones. It's not something that's done through uh, purely 2D computer vision. They are leveraging those expensive depth sensors that are built into the iPhone Pro and iPad Pro to do that room scanning. And it's not something that's available on the other devices. So yes, that that may be an advantage to Apple's headset and that you can bring in all these parts of your room without having to do this manual tagging. But that's also going to be one of the reasons why it stays well out of the range of affordability for regular buyers. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, that's really interesting. Like I, I, I appreciate that. I, I always think back to Apple launching without an app store. They were announcing things as coming for the web only. You could download like the web app into your, uh, into your home screen and have a web app full screen pretty early on on Apple. And I know they've like changed that functionality a little bit over time. But that was the only way they could sandbox the wide range of experiences that they wanted you to be able to access on an iPhone. And then it took them about another year before they actually got support for for apps. And I don't know, Meta has got a good store for games. Like it's, it's actually working for developers who are building games. Uh, it's hard to imagine what kind of shape an app store takes for Apple that works for developers at a larger scale than what we're seeing over with Meta. Thank you to Ryan B for becoming a member. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to see what Meta is capable of delivering on Quest Pro through purely software updates. You have that sort of headline removal of the depth sensor that would have allowed this kind of advanced room interaction where you mesh out your furniture and have these games take place in an environment that geometrically matches your room, even though it doesn't have to visually match your room. You know, instead of your sofa being a sofa, it turns into a sandbag. Uh, Instead of your window being as it is in real life, you see kind of a massive scene out your window where all of the enemies are coming from. You know, your floor can become some sort of uh, terrain outdoors and maybe your bookcase becomes some sort of tree trunk. These ideas will not be possible until you do get that automatic scanning. But if Meta can achieve it through purely computer vision, then that opens down the ability for this to come to really low-cost devices in the future. And that's when developers can really get interested because even if you did have automatic on Quest Pro today, it's still not going to be appealing to developers because as we've always seen, developers will not build an experience around a feature that only a small subset of their users have available to them. It's one of the reasons that A lot of people have said that if Quest 3 doesn't have face and eye tracking, that's going to be something that developers don't look at for years and years down the line. It needs to be the standard feature set for developers who have, you know, limited time and limited resources and have to prioritize what they decide to care about can build experiences around it. 
small baguette asking this question. I might uh, misconstrue it a little bit, so correct me if I misunderstand it, but asking whether Meta's focus on not appearing like they're violating privacy will end up holding them back to the point of failure. That's why I brought up the John Carmack comment, uh, which he made obviously publicly on Twitter, where uh, he's kind of holding Meta's leadership to account for whether or not they take that position. Um, I, I think it was almost a call to arms, uh, so to speak, uh, for Meta's leadership to uh, focus on... There's, there's this space between what's regulated about free speech and uh, recording in public and uh, what can be learned over time from like just uh, societal norms slowly changing. I think a lot about how uh, the iPhone came out in 2007, uh, App Store 2008, and then uh, it takes a couple of years for those platforms to be in existence before you start seeing things like Uber pop up and take off and this new form of like getting uh, paid for your, your car uh, popping up over this interim of, of several years needing for, for all this to take over. Uh, we're really at the beginning of of this process with AR and VR, except that um, the, the example that I think of is people pulling out their phones to record awkward interactions in public spaces, right? That wasn't something that existed in the first few years of iPhones becoming, you know, big and Androids becoming big. It took multiple years and then suddenly everyone is holding out their phones to record every single event. Everyone in the crowd at the concert is holding up a phone to record something that's being recorded by a thousand other people from you know, slightly different angles. It, it took a good 15 years for the cultural norms to change of people like afraid to pull out their devices in public and record people to people recording every awkward interaction around them. And we're, we're going on that path now with glasses, right? We had Google Glass come out and actually how gaudy and weird those devices were on your head actually creeped out people so much that they said, no, we're not doing it. And now we've got the Ray-Bans out here and a couple other glasses that are forcing their way into public use. Is it going to take us 10 to 15 years of just people constantly putting cameras on themselves in uh for, for that to get through? Or is there going to be regulation that's actually going to stop that practice from happening? I, th I think the other way to look around it is, is it possible that the normalization of having cameras in public that smartphones have created will make it take a lot less time for cameras mounted on your glasses to be accepted? We've already got to a stage where in many kind of developed cities, it there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in public spaces because everyone is holding a smartphone and so many people are recording a TikTok in the corner and someone else is making a YouTube video that at some point you just have to realize that there, we've already reached this kind of post-privacy public space that people have been worried about for so many years. Maybe if you're in a rural town or you're somewhere that's uh, less developed where people aren't using technology as much for these use cases, you're still kind of kept away from it. But, you know, if you're in a major city, you already are at this stage. Uh, in terms of whether there's been a privacy overcorrection in Meta, I think one thing that some developers have complained about is that they feel they could have done a lot 
if Meta gave them raw camera data access. So we know that almost certainly the reason that Meta doesn't give developers access to the pass-through cameras is for these privacy concerns. Developers can overlay pass-through in their apps so they can build mixed reality apps. They can obtain the guardian play space that you drew. You know, they get the geometry of the guardian play space you drew. They can get your room set up if you've gone and tagged your walls and ceilings and furniture like we were talking about before, but they don't actually get the pixels. They don't get to actually see what those cameras are seeing. But if they did, you could get a lot of the speculative use cases we talk about today, including object tracking and QR codes and a lot of these advanced things could be done by some entrepreneurial computer vision startups without having to wait for Meta to do all this down the line. And that's somewhere where... It's arguable that already today, that trade-off for privacy is already impacting the potential utility of the device. Mm-hmm. I And I'm seeing a lot of people sort of echoing uh, some of what you're saying, uh, Heaney. Uh, I do think there is a fair amount of difference between rural and urban sort of uses of devices, and there is a lot of tension there. Uh, you know, you do have, I don't know, drones flying overhead from time to time, but that does still feel like an invasion of privacy for a lot of people um, who just, yeah, I, I think there is a difference there. Uh, CC, closed circuit TV, like that's that's a pretty common term over there in the UK, isn't it, Heaney? Because I, I don't think it's as common here to have that many cameras in public as, as you have over there uh, in England. Yeah, especially in in a city like London, every street you go on, there are multiple cameras covering every possible angle. And the majority of them are still closed circuit in the sense that they, I don't know if you can still hear me. Yeah, I could hear you. Okay, and for some reason I'm in complete pass-through now. I can't actually see anything VR, but I'll keep talking. Most of those are closed circuit (laughs) in the sense that they are recording to a offline device that is not being accessed by any kind of central authority. But more and more over time are actually online devices that can be accessed by a central authority. And when you go to authoritarian countries like China, they're in a situation where every street is covered with these connected cameras to the point where the state has the ability to essentially monitor any location in the city in real time. And obviously, hopefully, that never comes to the majority of Western cities. But in the future, if these devices do start to make this idea more common, maybe that is a slippery slope that happens. Hmm. Lots of things to think about there, about the differences between cultures, uh, societal laws, uh, local norms to respond to things. I notice when uh, you're, you're driving across states, like there's, there's usefulness uh, when you think of, uh, I don't know, terrorism threats, uh, where if you're sort of tagging all of the license plates going across state lines, you could identify uh, threats once they've actually come uh and become known, you could go back and go into the logs and find info. But the question that people get a lot of worried about is what are the abuses of powers like that? Um, there was a question up earlier asking if we do summaries of what we do in our shows. It's an interesting idea that we should think about uh, going forward. Maybe there is a, a way to do like a, a shortcut of the things that we cover in this show for social media. I don't know. Um any, any comments there you want to respond to before we close out this show? So I'm going to read through now. I had to pop back in. There was a very, very weird issue where I was in pass-through, but I was still, from an audio perspective in VR, you know, I could hear you from where you were. I could hear the sound of you clicking your tablet, but what I saw was my real room. So that was definitely 
very odd just looking through the comments now. Yeah, people just pointing out that police officers in, in many countries now use vest-worn cameras at all times. That's even true for private security guards now. So, you know, if, you, if any security guard or police officer is watching you, you're being recorded. Uh, people are point, obviously, you point out the example of a drone. Anywhere a drone's being used, you're being recorded. It is, you know, terrifying in many ways to think what the sum of all of these cameras in coming decades will be to the point where it's possible that not only will you always being, be being recorded, but you'll be recorded from maybe dozens of angles at once while you're walking through a city. Yeah, the, the balance of power and the potential abuses of power at, at the various le- levels of those technologies is going to be something we're going to come back to again and again and again. Um, Andrew asking, is Upload VR going to review the new Sony body tracking product? I think we'll have an article up about that fairly soon, uh, sort of setting expectations where they should be for, for that particular branded device. Yeah, one thing, you know, we plan to cover this later today, but one thing from what I've looked at, it does appear to be Japan only, for one. So we wouldn't be reviewing a product that's only launching in Japan. And number two, it's not actually anything new. There are already IMU body tracking products in the market where what these do is they're little accelerometer and gyroscopes you attach to yourself and they can come up with a plausible estimate of your body pose. But it's not actually as accurate as true optical body tracking or body tracking through something like a Vive tracker. It's also going to have a lot of drift issues and it's going to require the manual calibration. There does seem to have been a hype train that has gone off at near the speed of light about this thing because it's coming from a big company and it's packaged in a very attractive uh, uh, form factor. And, you know, it looks like it's very well integrated into this Sony app, but this is not new technology and it's only launching in Japan as far as we know, and I wouldn't expect five tracker level body tracking from it. But it just goes to show how much appetite there is out there for a really viable and affordable and practical VR body tracking solution where you just get a, a teaser of something like this and it sets people's imaginations off. Yeah, I I hope we'll see some real first-party accessories over the next generation of VR headset, right? From both PSVR to uh, Meta's next-generation headsets, I, I would love to see them take accessories to the next level, right? The, the, the full-body tracking add-ons from Vive over the last five years, like that was one of the only things I could point to as like, this is something to seriously consider if you really want to use VR for these purposes. And there's been nothing else. There's been a bunch of 3D-printed sort of holders for paddles or bats or, or those sorts of things, but nothing of the sort of usefulness of those those full-body trackers. I, I'd hope we get that solved in the next couple of years so that that's something that more than just hundreds and hundreds of dollars of equipment uh, are going to need for us to pull off. Yeah, it is I, one of those huge topics that you know we brought up on the show before and there's a lot you can go into, but it's just we're not yet at the point where you can get high quality and low cost in the same solution. You either have, you know, complexity and cost or you have something that doesn't get up to the same level of quality. And it's really unfortunate because body tracking does add so, so much to VR and it opens so many potential for developers. If we ever were, if we ever do get to a situation where it's a default feature in all of the major VR headsets, you're going to see games and apps that are simply not possible for a developer trying to make money 
to develop today. But unfortunately, we're just not there yet. It's further off than uh, people are hoping it is. I get the you're you're right on the low cost. I guess it's just the it's been weird to watch this this evolution at Meta where they tried to do the portal video calling devices as their own category, and a fair number of people looked at that and said, "I should be able to use those cameras for VR." And even the execs over at Meta are saying there's not a a good use case for that yet. Like we're not there yet, either software wise or or whatnot to sort of anchor a whole product around an external camera for your full body VR interactions. But again, we come back to this thing, Heaney, where some people are spending four to five hundred dollars for really robust full body tracking on top of what is already a huge investment. I, I, it, I sort of just, it boggles my mind. There isn't a $100 solution that works for a lot of these use cases. Well, there's just the technology to make a, an actual $100 body tracking system just doesn't exist yet. You know, there's just, if you look at the, the, the ideas you could do here, you can have a worn tracker, a la Vive trackers. So Meta and I could do that with computer vision using something that is basically Quest Pro controllers, but with like the thumbsticks and triggers, just those three cameras and that SOC. But that's still going to be north of $150 for the pair. And you need three for good body tracking. Uh, you have this idea of using external cameras. You know, you're talking about the idea of using something like a portal. Even then, though, you know, those, the cheapest standalone portal device there was $150. You're to get 360 degree body tracking you're going to need two or else you're going to be back in the days of only use vr facing one direction and all of these apps have to be designed around keeping you facing that direction as soon as you get two then again you've gone way above a hundred dollars in the solution it's just it's frustrating but it's just something that's going to take a lot of advancement in technology obviously the third path we haven't talked about there is the idea of you know inside out tracking where you have cameras that are facing down from the headset or and sorry, and or cameras that are on the bottom of the controllers facing back at you. But even then, that adds its own challenges and is something that isn't available in the current wave of products that reportedly is going to come in Apple's headset. Yeah, Andrew making this comment that Apple's tags are only like between $20 and $30 and they have high resolution tracking. Could they do it? Well, it's not, it's not sixed off uh, of the precision that you need for milli, mi- millimeter scale. Uh, you can pull out your phone and sort of use them, use the phone to zero in uh, on the feet or even like within a foot that this tracker is hidden at. But I think there's still a pretty large gap between that level of tracking accuracy and what you need for real-time sort of game-playing use cases. Yeah, there are a lot of radio frequency positional tracking systems, and this was something that was explored a lot in the early days of VR. But the problem is that, as Ian said, what seems high precision for an application like finding your keys is actually incredibly low precision for VR when it comes to actually accurately tracking uh, something in real time that's moving. It, it, any of the radio frequency tracking solutions that ended up working at VR level quality ended up costing you know absurd amounts of money. And they are something that are used by certain niche industrial applications. And they're in use in some medical applications that you know there are surgery uh, technologies where the, the exact uh, surgeon's tools are tracked using radio frequency tech, but you know it's tens of thousands of dollars. For the for now, it just seems that the only viable tracking technologies we've seen from VR are either optical through computer vision, where you're using a camera, 
or through uh, laser sweeping and photodiodes, which is what you saw with uh, Steam uh, Valve's Steam VR Lighthouse tracking system. So I just maybe we'll end on this note because it's just one of those things. But I one of the things I've sort of thought about a lot, Heaney, is uh, when we've got good mixed reality and you can track a lot of radio frequency transmission sources. I would love to have visualizations of all the radio frequencies and their where they're coming from in my headset, like a sort of X-ray vision or, or like a superpower where you can see uh, there's Bluetooth coming from over there uh, between the computer vision on the system and uh, matching up the signal quality. They could probably do a pretty good guess that like, oh, that gamepad over there is actually broadcasting a Bluetooth signal. And you could actually visually see uh, the signals coming off of all the devices around you. And it's really f fun to think about when that visualization is placed or, or once we actually get to it, you could use that for pairing a lot of the devices to your headset over time. But uh, yeah, I want, I want x-ray vision for the radio signals around me. Yeah, I imagine that's how you'll set up a, a wireless router in future. You know, eventually when you have AR glasses and VR headsets are very widespread, you'll get a router and you'll place it down and you'll notice this kind of signals come off it and it'll visually guide you to place it in your room in the right place. There's so many applications of what happens and what becomes possible when technology comes from something that sits in a little rectangle in your hand or a rectangle on your desk to being in your visual space with an understanding of your actual environment. This idea that you know some companies have called spatial computing, we are in the early, early days of it, and the use cases that will be most popular and useful or interesting haven't probably even been thought about yet. And it's really exciting to know that you know you see a lot of pessimism still in this industry, but I think the long term will definitely prove that wrong. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't wait to be to, to see all these things and discover them uh, one at a time as they roll out. Right. A lot of the ideas that we're going to see over the next couple of years have been attempted over the last few years in VR, but we're going to see them done on hardware that was made for them. And that's going to be a, a big difference uh, going forward. I want to say thank you to Vail VR for their sponsorship this week. You can find uh, more details in our description. Thank you all for tuning in and for the great discussion. Obviously, share the link out to VR Download. Uh, thank you to Kyle and Heaney for picking it up last week. Uh, we've got the holiday season coming up here, going into the last part of the year. We have an upload VR showcase coming up on December 7th, I believe it is. Uh, doing that from memory, so hopefully I don't have those days wrong. Uh, but yeah, we've got the showcase coming up. We're going to debut a lot of cool things. I've seen a couple of the things that are coming, and they are very, 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 very neat. So come back to our channel. Please like, comment, subscribe. And thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.